All right, take a Bible. Our passage is going to be 2 Samuel 12 and 13. And then at the end of the evening, we're going to flip over and look at 1 Chronicles 28. Uh, In this series, we're taking episodes from David's life. Sometimes that means we're looking at one small chronological window of time. Uh, In other Wednesday nights, we've taken David and his relationship with another person, and that's sort of spanned multiple episodes. Uh, The topic tonight is David and Solomon. It's really a carryover from last week when we looked at 2 Samuel 11 and part of 12, and we talked about David and Bathsheba. What we're looking at tonight is just a continuation of that. And as I looked at my notes this afternoon... um, I try to get ahead for Wednesday night studies. Sunday morning I do each week. Wednesday nights I try to get ahead. So I pulled my notes out and I looked at my notes. And I read through them once and I thought to myself, that's kind of depressing. (laughs) And I thought, well, maybe I need to go back and add something in here or whatever. And then I thought about the story and I thought, no, that's kind of the point of the story. The point of the story is pretty somber and pretty serious. And it's interesting Most of the books that I've been using for study and prep for Wednesday nights don't talk about this. They certainly talk about David and Bathsheba. There's no way you can miss that. But the fallout from David and Bathsheba, as you think about David and Solomon and some of the things we're going to look at tonight, a lot of them just sort of skip over that and they move on to another episode in David's life. That's really common tonight and the next several weeks. There's some episodes in David's life that are just hard to think about. They're not particularly delightful to think about. Uh, They're at times sort of depressing and sort of a downer. And a lot of authors just sort of say, okay, David and Goliath, yes. Uh, David fighting the Philistines, yes. David and Bathsheba, we got to include that one. Uh, David and Nabal, that's a funny story. The guy just falls over dead. This stuff towards the end of his life, a lot of people leave out, and we're going to try not to do that. We're going to try to talk about it and think through some of these things. So we're going to start with the vocabulary word and a definition. So we'll take you back to elementary school or middle school here. Vocabulary word, consequence, consequences. Say result or effect of an action. When I bring up the word consequence, You might think of your mom or your dad talking to you when you were a child saying, young man, young woman, there's going to be a consequence if you do that, if you say that. You know as well as I do, some people never really learn the idea of consequences. Uh, At least as they live their life and make decisions, you think, I don't know that you're seeing the cause and the effect in what's going on here. You seem to be stuck in a loop. But you know your words have consequences. Your actions have consequences. The way you handle money has consequences. The food that you put into your mouth or don't has consequences. Your work ethic has consequences. And usually when we use the word consequences, we're not thinking about particularly positive outcomes. Sometimes you might be, but most of the time we're thinking sort of negative outcomes. So as I was preparing this, it was January 30th. I looked up news stories with the word consequence in the title of news stories. 
So this is January 30th of this year. Here are some of the news stories that had the word consequence in the title. Number one, the coronavirus is having Olympic consequences back on January 30th. Number two, Ireland's election, a contest with consequences. Next, five environmental consequences of Australia's fires. Next, the NSA warns consequences for not patching dangerous Windows 10 bug. Next, the consequences of New York City's recycling failure. And last, British ambassador comments on Brexit consequences. You get the idea. All of those have an ominous feel to them, right? You read the headline and you realize the author is trying to say to me something bad is happening or about to happen because something else has taken place. The effect of some cause has negative consequences. We tend to talk about positive results, negative consequences. And they're a part of life. They're unavoidable. Robert Louis Stevenson said this, sooner or later, everyone sits down to a banquet of consequences. That's a pretty good quote. Sooner or later, everyone sits down to a banquet of consequences. The Apostle Paul said it like this, do not be deceived, God is not mocked, for whatever one sows, that will he also reap. So tonight we're looking at David's life, and we're going to talk about the consequences. We talked about the sin with Bathsheba last week. We talked about how Nathan came and confronted David. He told him this story. He was wise in the confrontation, but he was bold in the confrontation, and David confessed his sin. And we talked last week that the forgiveness almost seemed too good, too easy. Like David just after all that filth just said, I've sinned against the Lord, and he said, you will not die. The Lord has taken away your iniquity. Tonight, as Paul Harvey would say, we pick up the rest of the story and we begin to talk about some of the consequences. Was there grace and forgiveness for David's sin? Yes. Were there consequences? Yes. So here we go. In response to David's sin and repentance, God promised forgiveness and consequences. This is just basic review, chapter 12. Verse 10, through Nathan, God said, Now therefore the sword shall never depart from your house, because you have despised me and taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. The sword, violence, conflict, fighting will never leave your house. If you look at verse 14, Nevertheless, because by this deed you have utterly scorned the Lord, the child who is born to you shall die. Now verse 13, the Lord has put away your sin, you're forgiven, you're not going to die, but Nathan also says there are going to be consequences. And the question and what we're about to look at tonight is how is David going to respond to those consequences? And as you watch David and how he responds to the Lord in dealing with these consequences, it's sort of a, a question for us to say, okay, in my life, when I face the consequence of my actions, how am I going to respond to that? And so we try to put ourselves in David's shoes and think through these same issues. When David's child was sick, this is the child that Bathsheba gave birth to, the child that was conceived in this affair. When David's child was sick, he responded with worship. 
That's pretty good. Right out of the gate, he's been forgiven, and his immediate response is worship. And if you just look, we'll read a few verses here. In your notes, it should say 2 Samuel 12, verse 15 to 23, and we'll just read these verses. Verse 15 says, The Lord afflicted the child that Uriah's wife bore to David, and he became sick. David therefore sought God on behalf of the child. And David fasted and went in and lay all night on the ground. And the elders of his house stood beside him to raise him from the ground, but he would not, nor did he eat food with them. On the seventh day, the child died. And the servants of David were afraid to tell him that the child was dead. For they said, Behold, while the child was yet alive, we spoke to him, and he did not listen to us. How then can we say to him, the child is dead? He may do himself some harm. But when David saw that his servants were whispering together, David understood that the child was dead, and David said to his servants, is the child dead? They said, he's dead. Then David arose from the earth, washed and anointed himself, changed his clothes, and he went into the house of the Lord and worshiped. He then went to his own house. And when he asked, they set food before him, and he ate. Then a servant said to him, What is this thing that you have done? You fasted and wept for the child while he was alive, but when your child died, you arose and ate food. He said, While the child was alive, I fasted and wept, for I said, Who knows whether the Lord will be gracious to me that the child may live? Notice he, he doesn't think that God owes him this. God doesn't owe us grace. It's his to give or his not to give. So he says, who knows? God may be gracious, may give me the opposite of what I deserve in this situation. That's what God's grace is. Verse 23, but now he's dead. Why should I fast? Can I bring him back again? I shall go to him, but he will not return to me. He seeks God. He's fasting. He's asking God for mercy. He's repenting of sin. And I think there's an interesting contrast here when you look at David losing this child in the episode we talked about several weeks ago when David was bringing the ark to Jerusalem and his friend Uzzah reached out and touched the ark and died. And one of the things we read in that story when the Lord burst out and killed Uzzah is that David saw the whole thing unfold and he was angry with God. He was so angry with God, he said, don't you dare bring that ark into Jerusalem. Take it to somebody else's house. I don't want anything to do with it. And there was this season in David's life where he was so mad at God for striking out against Uzzah, he just sort of walled himself off from God. And when you've read that and you know that's how he responded when Uzzah died, you look at this episode and you think, oh man, this isn't just his buddy, this is his child. If he got mad at God last time, how's he going to respond this time? And this time, he doesn't get angry with God. There's a little bit of growth in David. He's learned, I'm, I'm not in any position to be angry with God. And he's seeking God. He's fasting, and he's humbling himself before God. And he says, maybe God will be gracious to me. Maybe he'll give me the opposite of what I deserve in this situation. And when it doesn't happen... He cleans himself up, gets off the ground, he 
goes to the temple or to the, the house of the Lord, not the temple at this point, maybe the tabernacle, and he worships. David's child is sick. He responds with worship. Next, David found comfort in the word of God. He found comfort in the word of God. I'm going to be honest with you. I don't have a verse in 2 Samuel to show you where this happened. I don't have a verse. You didn't miss it in the middle there of 2 Samuel 12 that says David got his daily study Bible out and read his daily devotion these seven days. and He did double days, double duty. He was so serious and so devoted. and He read through the whole book. I don't have a verse that says that. And I'm just telling you, this is a man after God's own heart, by and large. He's seeking the Lord. He's praying. He's fasting. He's humbling himself before God. I don't think it's a huge stretch. I can't show you in the text, but I don't think it's a huge stretch to think that David is not reading God's Word in this season of his life. And I don't know exactly what maybe he was reading, but I gave you a few possibilities. Maybe he's reading Genesis 18. When God comes to Abram and he's going to destroy Sodom and they have a discussion and Abraham ends up saying, will not the judge of all the earth do what's right? Maybe David's thinking on that, saying, you know what, God, he does what's right. He's a good judge. He doesn't, he doesn't do what's wrong. He always does what's right. Maybe he's thinking about Exodus 33, God talking to Moses and he says, Moses, I give mercy to whom I give mercy and I give grace to whom I give grace. It's mine to dispense. It's not something you earn. It's not something that you, you cajole out of me or manipulate from me. I give it freely to who I'm going to give it to. And maybe David's thinking about that. And he says, look, maybe the Lord will be gracious to me. Maybe he's thinking about Job 121 where Job loses everything and he says, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And the text says when Job said that, he did not sin with his mouth. Acknowledging God's sovereignty over his suffering. Job did not sin and he praises God in the midst of his suffering. Maybe that's a passage that he's thinking about. But I think he's finding comfort in the word of God. Bathsheba, eventually, this son dies. She has another son and they name him Solomon, which means peace. And then he's also known as Jedidiah, which means loved by the Lord. And we'll just read that quickly. It's not a long section. 2 Samuel 12, verse 24, David comforted, comforted his wife Bathsheba and went in to her and lay with her, and she bore a son and called his name Solomon, and the Lord loved him, sent a message by Nathan the prophet, so he called his name Jedidiah. You may have a footnote. The ESV has a footnote that says Jedidiah means beloved of the Lord. They called him Jedidiah because of the Lord. Those are hope-filled names. You, you want to try to get inside David's psyche when he loses this child and then Bathsheba conceives and she's going to have another baby. You want to get inside David's head and say, what's he thinking? What's he feeling? Uh, what are he and Bathsheba talking about? They're not angry with the Lord. This is not the David who said, don't bring the ark in here. He killed Uzzah. I don't want anything to do with him. This is David saying, I'm going to comfort my wife. She conceives, she has a, another child, and they name him Solomon. Peace. David's saying, I'm at peace with what's happened. He's not saying, I feel good about all the things that I've done. 
But he's saying, I'm at peace with how God has handled this situation. I'm not angry at God. I have a relationship with God. He's forgiven me. Nathan comes around and Nathan calls him Jedediah, beloved of the Lord. God's not angry with you, David. He's forgiven you. Was there a consequence? Yes. But this child is loved by the Lord. So they call him Solomon or Jedediah. That sort of lets you in on his psyche. So up to this point, you say, well, that's pretty good. He's going to face the consequence of his sin, and he responds with worship. And it's hopeful worship. Next, the sword begins to destroy his house, and he responds passively. Passively. This episode is not so great. We're going to talk about this next week, so I don't want to read too much out of 2 Samuel 13. I just want to mention a few things. David's firstborn son, Amnon, raped his half-sister, Tamar. Even to put it down on the page takes your breath away a little bit. You start to look at this episode and you think, okay, Hunter's going to go through this with the youth. Do you edit this out? At what age do we begin to talk about some of the things that you find in the Scriptures? Because this is a pretty, a pretty dark scene. Amnon rapes his half-sister Tamar. I just want you to think about a few things. Where would Amnon learn to do something like this? Where would Amnon learn that it's okay to force yourself on a woman that you're attracted to? Where would Amnon learn that it's okay to violate the Torah if you think it's going to make you happy and satisfied? I have a hard time imagining that there was a moment where Daddy David walked into Amnon's room and said, Son, sit down. We need to have a talk. Father to son, man to man. And that David laid all of this sort of stuff out to his son as if it was good or acceptable or okay. I don't, I don't imagine that that ever happened. What I do imagine happening is Amnon watching his dad as he deals with Bathsheba. Or maybe not watching but hearing stories about what happened. Because David covered it up for a while. It was, it was pretty quiet. When it all came out, he's hearing stories from different people. Did you hear what your dad did? Did you hear what happened? And he's processing it all, and he's thinking it through. And on the one hand, he knows the things his dad has taught him. And on the other thing, on the other hand, he sees the things that his dad is doing. And it's a reminder that, yes, you need to teach your children and your grandchildren the truth, but you also need to set a godly example for them to follow. And we talked about that this weekend. Dr. Aiken talked about that Sunday morning in our, our parenting class. Teaching, absolutely essential, necessary. Sit your kids down, talk to them about the Scriptures, tell them the truth, but they're also watching the way that you live. And somewhere along the way, Amnon picked up through the examples that he had in his life, that it was okay to do just this kind of thing. Next, it gets worse. Verse 21, if you look at 2 Samuel 13, 21, we'll talk about this more next week. It says, King David heard all of these things and he was very angry. Imagine he would be very angry. 
and you expect the very next verse to tell you all the things that David did to deal with this situation, it doesn't because he didn't. He did nothing. Was he angry about it? Oh, yeah. He would have sat down with you and told you how ticked he was at his son and how embarrassed he was for his family and how bad he felt for Tamar. He did absolutely nothing about it. And in the wake of that, David's son Absalom plots the murder of his brother Amnon. And again, we're going to talk about this next week. Absalom was kind of a spoiled brat. Um, He at least did stick up for his sister in this story, something that David didn't do. Uh, Absalom's dad was the king of Israel. Absalom's granddad was the king of Gesher. So he's double royalty. He finds out what Amnon has done, and he plots his course for two years. He doesn't take immediate action, but he starts to enact a plot. It's very well thought out. He almost gives Amnon a taste of his own medicine. This is what I mean. Amnon tricked David into sending Tamar into his presence where he then assaulted her. That's exactly what Absalom does. He tricks David into sending his half-brother, Amnon, into his presence where he is then assaulted and eventually murdered. And if you look at chapter 13, verse 37, it says this, Absalom fled. He went to Talmi, the son of Amihud, king of Gesher. So he goes to his grandfather's kingdom. He runs away. And David mourned for his son day after day. Absalom fled, and he went to Gesher, and he was there three years. Three whole years go by. There's a two-year window after Tamar is raped. There's a three-year window after Absalom murders his brother. And in that five years, David does nothing. He's completely passive. Piggybacking off last week, you can choose your sin. You do not get to choose the consequences of your sin. We talked about that last week, and you see it played out here. You can choose your sin. You have no control over the consequences of your sin. And this week, we're going to add to that one more step. You are able to choose how you respond to the consequences of your sin. You can choose your sin. You don't get to choose the consequences. You do get to choose how you respond to those consequences. And you look at David in this first episode with the child and you say, okay, he responds with worship. That's good. That's positive. That's encouraging. You look at this next episode where the sword begins to devour his house and he does nothing. And you just want to reach into the pages of the Bible and grab David by his cloak and shake him and say, be the dad. Do something. Makes me think of Uh, growing up when I was little. I have a sister who's four years younger than me. I'll put a picture up. Uh, That was us on vacation, my mom and my dad and my sister on the left. When you're as old as we are now, four years doesn't seem like a lot. When you're in grade school, four years seems like a lot to have a baby sister four years younger than you. And um, we didn't always get along when we were little, grade school age. Uh, Sometimes we did, but a lot of the times we didn't get along very well. Um, usually that's because she was annoying, 
um, unreasonable, manipulative, destructive, demanding. And I tried to be as congenial as I could through our growing up years, and she at times just wouldn't have it and was not interested in being nice. And I remember a lot of times growing up when my mom would say, everybody stop, we're going to have a powwow. And I don't know if it's politically correct to talk about having a powwow or not, and it's probably not, but that's what she would say. And she would sit us down and she said, we're going to have a powwow. And what that meant in our house is everybody's going to calm down. We're going to sit down, not choking each other. We're going to talk for a minute. You can say what you need to say. You can say what you need to say. And then we're done, and we're moving on with it. And we're going to deal with it. If there needs to be discipline, there will be discipline. We're going to have a powwow. We're going to move on. At the end of 13, at the beginning of 13, somewhere in chapter 13, you just want David to say, hey, we need a family powwow. You just want David to say, look, I've screwed this up. I've done a terrible thing. And there's going to be consequences for our family. The Lord said the sword would not depart from our house. That's the consequence. God has laid it out. We don't need to help him in enacting the consequences. We don't need to make it worse than it's already going to be. We don't need to pour gasoline on the fire. You just want him to get everyone together in the same room and have a heart-to-heart and where there needs to be discipline, be some discipline, where there needs to be some forgiveness, some forgiveness, where we need to agree to disagree. You just want him to do something, to try something. He does nothing. Completely passive. So he has a sick child and he worships. It's good. Sword is destroying his family. He does nothing. It's bad. One last thing that I would give him a pat on the back for. At the end of his life, we're jumping forward here, David gave a public charge to Solomon. He knows that Solomon's going to be the king, and he gives him sort of a a directional, motivational word of encouragement. Look at 2 Chronicles 28. Just read a few verses here. Excuse me, 1 Chronicles. That's my typo. 1 Chronicles 28, starting in verse 9, there's a charge to Solomon. It goes through the end of the chapter. We'll read it. 1 Chronicles 28, verse 9. It says, You, Solomon, my son, know the God of your father and serve him with a whole heart and with a willing mind. For the Lord searches all hearts and understands every plan and thought. If you seek him, he will be found by you. But if you forsake him, he will cast you off forever. Be careful now, for the Lord has chosen you to build a house for the sanctuary. Be strong and do it. Then David gave Solomon his son the plan of the vestibule of the temple and the house, the treasuries, the upper rooms, the inner chambers, the room for the mercy seat, and the plan of all that he had in mind for the courts of the house of the Lord, the surrounding chambers, treasuries of the house of God, the treasuries for dedicated gifts, the division of priests and the Levites, all the work of the service in the house of the Lord, all the vessels for service in the house of the Lord, the weight of gold for all the golden vessels for each service, the weight of the silver vessels for each service, the weight of the golden lampstands, their lamps. I know this is tedious. Stay with me. 
The weight of the silver for lampstand, its lamps according to the use of each lampstand in the service. The weight of gold for each table for the showbread, the silver for the silver tables, pure gold for the forks, the basins, the cups, the golden bowls, the weight of each for the silver bowls and the weight of each. The altar of incense made of refined gold, its weight is planned for the golden chariot of the cherubim that spread their wings covered the ark of the covenant of the Lord. All this he made clear to me in writing from the hand of the Lord, all the work to be done according to the plan. Then David said to Solomon his son, be strong and courageous and do it. Do not be afraid and do not be dismayed for the Lord God, even my God, is with you. He will not leave or forsake you until all the work of the service of the house of the Lord is finished. And behold, the divisions of the priests and the Levites for all the service of the house of God. And with you all the work will be every willing man who has skill for any kind of service. The officers and the people will be holy at your command. That's his last charge. He's just given this charge to the nation. And then he just looks at Solomon. It's almost like an ordination service. And he just says to Solomon, this is what I need you to do. I'm not going to be here for it. But this is what I'm asking you to do. We'll just try to break it down into a few ideas. Number one, he tells Solomon that he needs to know the Lord. That's the very first thing. You, Solomon, my son, know the God of your father. You have to know him. You know what the difference between knowing God and knowing about God is? Eternity. That's the difference. Eternity. David does not say to Solomon, I need you to study systematic theology so you can get an A on the exam that the high priest is going to give you. He says, I want you to actually know God. I had a guy come into my office just a couple of weeks ago, and he found our church on the internet, and he uh, emailed me, and he came in to visit. This is a guy who is not a believer. Um, he has read the Bible or is in the process of reading the Bible. He said he'd read the whole thing. I don't know if he's read the whole thing, but he said, I've read the whole thing. I'm working through it. I'm trying to read. I'm trying to think. I'm trying to study. Uh, he has burned a hole in his keyboard on Google, searching up questions and looking for answers, which is a, not a great way to study theology, but he's been doing it. He's been reading all sorts of stuff all over the internet, and he's taken in the Bible in big chunks for the very first time, and he had all kinds of questions. I mean questions all over the map. And he's trying to take this avalanche of information and put it into some coherent whole and know what to do with it. And the last thing I said to him after we visited for about an hour or so was, you're on a path of learning a lot of things about God. Far more important than that is knowing God. You can know all the answers to all your questions. You can reach the end of every Google search. You can read all of the theology books. You can pass all of the theology exams. But if you don't know the Lord personally, all the rest of it's a waste. And the very first thing that David says to Solomon in this charge is, know God. You have got to know him in a personal way. Secondly, he says, be devoted to the Lord. Verse 9, serve him with a whole heart and a willing mind. Solomon, your commitment 
to Yahweh cannot be partial. You can't just say, I'm going to do it later. You can't just say, oh, I'm going to do it when it's convenient. You have got to know the Lord, and you've got to be completely devoted to him. Why would David say something like that to his son? It's because he looks back on his life and he says, I'm a man after God's own heart, but there were days and weeks and months when I was not devoted to the Lord. And it cost me. It didn't cost me my relationship with the Lord. It didn't cost me salvation. It didn't even cost me the kingdom in the end. But it cost me. He says, Solomon, you've got to be devoted. Thirdly, he calls Solomon to worship the Lord. We read all those instructions about the temple. Verse 10, the Lord has chosen you to build a house for the sanctuary. Be strong and do it. And then kind of like a, an overbearing mother, he tells him exactly how to do it. Don't get creative here, Solomon. Just do it exactly like this. There's no artistic license to be taken. God gave me the plan. This is how you do it. He's not being controlling or nitpicky. He understands what's at stake in the temple. This is where the people of God are going to come to worship. This is where Solomon will lead the people as the king in worship. And he's saying, you've got to be committed to knowing God, to being devoted to Him, and to worshiping Him as He tells you to worship Him. Again, there's no room for creativity here. Just do exactly what God has told you to do. Next, he says, be strong and courageous. He says that a couple of times. Be strong and courageous. I think he says it because he knows it's going to be hard. Solomon, this isn't going to be easy. It's going to be difficult. It's going to be hard to lead your family. It's going to be hard to lead this nation. Be strong. Be courageous. And then lastly, he assures Solomon that the Lord will be with him. Chapter 28, verse 20. David said to Solomon, his son, be strong and courageous. Do it. Do not be afraid. Do not be dismayed. Why? For the Lord God, even my God, is with you. He will not leave you or forsake you till all the work of the service of the house of the Lord is finished. So this is interesting. Last charge. David sort of passing the baton to Solomon. Solomon, here's, this is all you got to do. It's very simple. Know the Lord, number one. Number two, be devoted to the Lord. Number three, worship the Lord. Just as he's told you to do it, worship the Lord. Number four, be strong and courageous. You're going to do number four because number five, God's going to be with you. That's all you got to do. That's it. How do he do? Solomon. Not so good. There was times, at least in the beginning, where the ball was rolling in the right direction and he was pulling the nation in the right direction. But pretty soon the whole thing goes off the tracks and you realize in the end, Solomon's not the guy they needed. David wasn't the guy they needed. And you read through these stories in the Old Testament and there is a depressing element to it. There's a cycle. You keep coming back through saying, Moses didn't even make it into the promised land. Joshua couldn't even lead them to conquer the entire land. They took pieces and strategic parts, but they didn't get all of it. The judges were a disaster. Saul was a disaster. David, he messed up his life and his family life. Solomon 
He comes out gangbusters and then the whole thing just comes off the track. And you read through this and there is intentionally an element of, at the end of each story, man, that's not the guy. Point you forward to Jesus. David's charge to Solomon was ultimately fulfilled by the greater son of David, Jesus. It's no coincidence in Matthew's genealogy, first page of the New Testament, we're introduced to Jesus and his family tree, and multiple times Matthew points out, this is the son of David. Forget about Solomon. This is the true son of David. And just look at those five things, right? The fivefold charge. Think about how Solomon messed it up and think about Jesus. Number one, you've got to know God. Jesus knew the Father. Knew him. From eternity past, knew him. They go way back. He knows him. He knows him. Secondly, be devoted. He's the only one who ever loved the Lord his God with all of his heart, with all of his soul, with all of his mind, with all of his strength. I haven't done it. You haven't done it. Solomon didn't do it. David didn't do it. Jesus did it. Thirdly, worship. He lived a life of worship. And he told the woman at the well in Samaria, I'm here because the Father is seeking worshipers. Not just to worship in a building with an ark and the right censers and the right weight of gold in the table, but to worship in spirit and in truth. That's my mission. Help the Father find these worshipers. Strength and courage. Is there any better picture of that than Jesus in the garden? Facing despair of bearing the sins of the world and getting up. And here come his enemies. Here come the betrayer. And he says, I'm here. He doesn't run. He doesn't hide. He goes to the cross full of courage, full of strength, knowing that God would be with him. What does he say to his people in the end? I'll be with you. I'm sending you out on a mission. I have something for you to do. I'm going to be with you. I'm not going to leave you. That five-fold charge that David gave to Solomon, it was certainly intended for Solomon, right? When David said it, in his mind, he is really thinking about Solomon. Solomon, this is what you need to do. He didn't do it. Jesus did it. And because he did it, we have life. We have eternal life. So that's David and Solomon.